iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? I need to use a lot of this money to convince people that everything else other people are trying to do for you in the metaverse or in the crypto world, almost everybody, almost without exception, everybody there is doing it because they want to steal from you. They want to grab your money or your coins in the form of fees, in the form of liquidations, in the form of everything besides helping you get to financial freedom. And if I can convince enough people, then we can build this future together. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And this week, we are talking crypto, we're talking Web3, the future of, well, maybe everything or maybe nothing. Um, our guest has some great stories to tell and a really unique perspective. He is Alex Mashinsky. He's a serial entrepreneur who has launched eight different businesses. He's had a few multi-billion dollar exits, and these days he runs Celsius, which you can think of as kind of like a crypto fund manager, let's call it. So you let them manage your Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever, and they generate, they lend it out, generate returns, and then they send those back to you, just kind of like a typical fund manager, except it's also very different, as you'll soon hear. And Mashinsky has just raised a whopping $750 million dollars to grow Celsius, which has already been exploding, as you might expect, given everything that's been happening with cryptocurrencies over this last year, year plus. And it's only three or four years old, the company itself. And what's really interesting is, as I mentioned, he comes at all of this from a very different, interesting angle because he is, as you might guess, a true crypto believer, a believer in Bitcoin. But he started out skeptical. And before launching Celsius, he had a ton of success as well as several failures in a bunch of completely unrelated industries. So some of the wild patterns we're seeing in um, in the crypto world right now, you know, with the overnight fortunes being made, the grifters that have come out of the woodwork, the scams, but also underlying all of that, the real technological breakthroughs that are happening kind of under the surface. Um, as he says, he has seen this movie many times before. And hopefully for me, he's also a great storyteller. And I think you're just going to, he'll give you a very interesting perspective on what is happening right now, why Celsius is interesting, what they're up to, and what's happening in crypto. Uh, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So I think you'll really enjoy this one. If you're all crypto curious, this is a great conversation for you. So with that, I will hand it over to my conversation with Alex Mashinsky, founder of Celsius. Enjoy. So there's a lot of ground I want to cover, but before we kind of get into, you know, dive into lots of different areas, it would be worth just saying at the top kind of what Celsius is, you know, as a starting point, and then we can go kind of backwards and then forwards and sideways, et cetera. 
Sure. So Celsius is a member organization. It's really a company that was modeled after Costco, Amazon, companies that really are customer centric. And we felt that Wall Street was uh, exhausted extracting value out of customers and delivering all of that to shareholders. And we wanted to build exactly the opposite. I feel that most companies today that are crypto companies have copied the best bad practices of Wall Street mm. and brought them into crypto. And crypto, according to Satoshi, was supposed to be the future of finance, not a copy of Wall Street. So, so Celsius' uh, a, a motto is uh, do good first and then do well. So the, the doing well must come out of doing good. It's not doing the two at the same time. It's you must do good for the community. And only if you've done good, then, and we always remind, you know, everybody that banks are not your friends. Banks are not your friends. That's what your t-shirt says. Yes. So when you put these principles, right, unbank the bank, then bank the unbanked, right? All these things, when you put them all together into a bottle and you create a recipe, what comes out of it is a tremendous amount of love from the community and what we call trust deposits. So before we take any crypto or anything from our customers, we want to create a relationship, a trust deposit with our community, make sure that we listen to them carefully, make sure we deliver what they need. And then we can go out and actually execute on these things because they told us that's what we want you to build for us. So just so, to give people a sense, so say I have $5,000 of Bitcoin. How would I get involved in Celsius? What? Why would I get involved in Celsius? What would it do for me? So normally, if you have 5,000 in Bitcoin, you are either storing it in some hardware key yeah. or you're keeping it on some exchange. Coinbase, Robinhood, etc. Exactly. And really, your coins are not working for you. And the main reason they're not working for you is because you are not big enough. You're not, you don't have enough leverage to extract at all or extract yield out of the people mm. that are holding your assets. So uh, Robinhood, for example, aggregates many, many customers, takes all their Tesla stocks, and then lends that Tesla stock to people like Citadel and others, gets paid yeah. for it. They just forgot the last piece. They don't give most of that money back to their community. So all Celsius <laughs> did is said, wait a second. We know what the real Robinhood would do. They would give 80 mm. or 90% of that revenue back to the community. And uh, since we started the company, we paid over a billion dollars to our community from revenues we received because we aggregated a million and a half small guys who individually could have never extracted any tolls. But together... You know that uh, image of the giant shark, but really it's tiny little fish that look like a giant shark? Yeah. That's what Celsius is. Got you. So if I put my 5,000 in Bitcoin with you, I would get a yield on it like an investment that, you know, whatever, a fund or an index fund or something. We pull you together with a million and a half users. All together, we have 115,000 Bitcoin. Okay. And then with that giant pool, we go to institutions and we say, hey, you want to do market making on Binance or on Bitfinex or yeah. on FTX? You need Bitcoin, right? Well, we charge 6% to borrow this Bitcoin. And when the institution borrows, let's say, 10,000 Bitcoin out of the 110,000 and they pay us interest, we then divide the income pro rata among all the 115,000 users. So it doesn't matter how much we deployed, everybody benefits from it. 
Right. So basically you're getting yield on this whatever, Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever it may be, which right now is just this thing that just whipsaws, but you don't get any return on it other than that. Right. Now, this is the hard way of doing yield. What everybody else is doing, you heard, I'm sure you heard of DeFi and you heard of all these kind yes. of crazy projects that offer you 12% yield on Bitcoin and 15% yes. yield on Ethereum. They don't do any of the stuff I just talked about. They just go to their treasury and give you their token and say, here is yield. Right. So there is yield from inflation and there is yield from actually charging counterparties a fee and then converting that into yield. Celsius only does the latter. We do not ever go to our treasury and, and shower you with tokens and pretend like that is real yield. That is copying what the Fed does every day. And we obviously don't want to copy that. <laughs> and is there a risk here, you know, in the system of you lending out mine and other people's Bitcoin? Is there a way for, for the proverbial to hit the fan? Of course, the minute you wake up in the morning, anything from that moment on is risk, you know? So <laughs> so life is full of risk. And, and the question is, are we taking reasonable risk or are we taking unreasonable risk? So in four years, uh, we've done, a, I didn't do the math, but it's got to be over $100 billion worth of loans, right? So mm. paying a billion in interest, we have not had any defaults, right? And if you go to Wall Street and you say, okay, guys, Wall Street existed for 200 years. What is the safest business on Wall Street? What is the business that no bank has ever gone out of business because of? And they'll tell you that is SEC lending. That is the safest business on Wall Street. Securities lending. SEC lending is securities lending. So what Celsius does is crypto lending, but it's a copy of SEC lending. And I'm not saying there is no risk, but the risk is the lowest compared to many, many other things that other people do. So let's talk in Wall Street terms, right? The dream of every investor is to beat the index, for example, beat the S&P index, yes. or beat the NASDAQ index and deliver alpha on top of it. That's what Celsius has done on 45 assets four years in a row, right? So we beat the Bitcoin index by 6%. We beat the Ethereum index by 5.5%. We beat the Polygon index by 12.5% right? Unheard of. Because you're basically getting this yield on top of the assets themselves. Exactly. Because for example, if I was using futures, like there's a product that tries to compete with us, it uses futures and they, they sell puts and calls. That is guaranteed not to deliver the index. Sooner or later, Bitcoin or Ethereum is going to outrun, blow through those bid-ask spreads, and you're going to lose some of that. So the magic of what Celsius does is that we took the safest product on Wall Street, combined it with what everybody wants and delivered that four years in a row. And last year, 2020, uh, Cell Token was the best performing crypto in the entire universe, right? Uh, so right. up 4,000% according to Masari, they ranked us number one. They took the top 100 assets by market cap and said, who, who had the best performance? Cell Token was number one. And again, almost 90% of that goes back to the community as yield, hmm. right? So doing right. good, phenomenal. I mean, just talk to our community, right? Doing phenomenal amount of good. I'm a big user of the platform, so I did. I, I, I got a lot of value out of it too. And hmm. doing well. The company is worth uh, billions of dollars. We just raised the second largest round in the crypto's history. How much did you raise? $750 million. Wow. From who? 
from uh, CDPQ, that's the uh, seventh largest retirement fund in Canada. Seventh largest in the world. They're the second largest in Canada. This is the Quebecois. Cassette de Pau. Yeah, Cassette de Pau. Yeah. And uh, Westcap, uh, which is a large private equity shop. Got you. Let's go all the way back. Well, first of all, where are you calling me from? I'm in New York. New York. Where are you from? Born in the Ukraine, grew up in Israel, and uh, after the military, uh, came to the U.S. So that was about 35 years ago. Long, long, long time ago. How did you end up in Israel from the from the Ukraine? Uh, my parents were uh, Zionists. They were like, all the Jews have to live in Israel. Let's move over there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. It was a kind of standard military service, or did you actually have to go anywhere that was scary, or do anything scary? I, I did it all. I, I started in the pilot program, which is uh, one of the elite programs, and they make you sign up for like seven years and this and that. I didn't want to do that. And then they punished me, so they put me in the front lines in Lebanon. You know, that wasn't fun. Oh, my gosh. That was during the invasion, the, the yeah. Israeli invasion to Lebanon. And then I was in the communication course. So I got to do some of the technical stuff that I love to do. And then I was in the central command. So I, I got to do a bunch of different things for three years. And uh, it was fun. I mean, it's definitely, it definitely makes you grow fast. I, I think every country should make their uh, teenagers, especially the spoiled kids that we're growing the, uh, these days, go through at least <laughs> one year of basic training, you know? Ooh. I mean, I guess, well, it certainly would push everybody out of their comfort zone. I think, look, we all struggle to find who we are. And it's like a catalyst. It's like an accelerator, just like you put uh, an enzyme to make sure that uh, things bake or work. This <laughs> the is military enzyme. The military enzyme, exactly. So, so, you know, a lot of people, again, they grow up very, very comfortably. They think that the world is so nice and they get to shop and do whatever they want and choose when they go to school or what they're going to do in life. And then reality hits real hard and uh, a lot of them just don't know how to cope with it. So this would be like a coaching, uh, instead of going to a psychiatrist and not getting anything, anything out of it, how about, uh, you know, we put you on a hill. <laughs> do some push-ups for do a year. Do some push-ups, exactly. So old school, you know? Yeah. So what, how did you end up in uh, America after that? What brought you here? It's a funny story because I, I had some business in France and it was cheaper to buy a ticket to New York with a stopover in Paris. Hmm. And so I bought a ticket. I was already in Paris and I had the stub like going to New York. I was like, I'm just going to go there for two or three days, you know? And that was 35 yeah, years ago. Why not? <laughs> oh, really? Yes. That's what happened. I never, I should have framed the return ticket because I never used it. You should have. <laughs> you bought the proverbial one-way ticket. So what happened in those two days that made you stay? You know, like I try to do some business in Europe and it's so hard. Like you, you either need the right last name or you need to go to the right school. All the things that uh, make you wait in line to be who you are, right? Most of us just don't get to express ourselves. And you come to the United States, at least I'm talking about the 80s, and you talk to a stranger and then they're like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's go do it. And I'm like, wow, what a refreshing answer. You know, right. compared to because in Israel, they just listen to your idea and then they copy it immediately. They steal it like before you even finish the sentence <laughs> in Europe. They tell you that you don't have all any of the credentials and you haven't worked 20 years in the field. And that's why you can't launch it. And in the United States, they help you make it happen. Right. So 
So I just think uh, America is definitely the land of opportunities. And it just most Americans don't see it. They're like, they're somehow are blind to the fact that they live in the land of opportunity and the rest of the world is not a place where you can just, you know, apply online and get a credit card where you can charge money you don't have. That does That's a concept that's only <laughs> exists in America, you know, like, so all these things are, uh, you know, I did eight startups, right? Celsius is my number eight. So I'm oozing ideas, right? I just can't stop myself. It's like, uh, I need therapy. <laughs> Go back to the military. Exactly. <laughs> so um, what was the initial idea that you were working on? What was the startup number one? So the first project I worked on was, was crazy, right? I was basically in London and in Paris. I had access to all this. Uh, this is before Google existed, before the internet Right. So I had access to all of these, like what's called the uh, Department of Commerce in each country in the UK and in France would issue these requests for uh, their embassy would send over from all over the world things that were in demand. And when I came to the US, the Department of Commerce in the US had that. So I would just sit all day and compare what do they want over there? What do they want over here? And I would try to match those together. And it happened that there was a, a shortage of a chemical called sodium cyanide. It's used for gold mining. And I actually managed to find a factory that had excess of sodium cyanide and a broker. I, I landed in the U.S. I lived in the, on the sixth floor without a elevator. Sixth floor walk up. That's brutal. That gets brutal after like the second day. No, you get in shape real quick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you don't go out unless you really have to, you know. Exactly. So, but, but I had a mattress on the floor in a room that I rented, a sublet from somebody else. And I had a fax machine. I bought a fax machine. It was like $600. I remember it like today because it was like half of all the money I had. <laughs> okay, I, I'm going to need a yeah. fax machine. It's cheaper than actually calling people because you can get the message in half a page, you know. And I managed to broker a deal uh, of 20-something million dollars. This is in the 80s, right? By not ever meeting the buyer or the seller. And I was like, I love this country. This is amazing. Where else can you do this? <laughs> so, so I have a couple questions. When you say you had access to these like government RFPs or whatever they were, requests for like, oh, we need a bunch of sodium cyanide. How do you even have access to that stuff? So the, the embassies uh, provided that information to industry. Basically, they wanted you to have this information because they wanted the British. So they're putting it out in the world to request, we need this stuff. You could only get it in the public library in, the, in London or, uh, or Edinburgh or whatever. Like so... The British were collecting it for themselves. The French were collecting it for themselves. But no one compared all these things together because there was no, you know, again, the internet didn't exist, right? So so I had an advantage of collecting all that information and being able to uh, match it or combine it or cross-reference it to find opportunities. Now, I didn't know anything about chemicals. I can tell you that I didn't know there was a thing called Department of Transportation, DOT, and this is a hazardous material. You can't just ship it to the United States. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> how do you, I mean, how do you just be like, you know what? I'm going to find $20 million worth of sodium cyanide with my fax machine from my mattress. I know. Listen, if I didn't have the backup, I actually have all the communications. If I didn't have it and I could show it to you, you wouldn't believe the story. You'd be like, how did it come up with this crazy story? This will never happen. Yeah. But the reality is that when you're young, you don't know what you don't know, right? And, and you're willing to take risks. You're willing to do things 
that a normal person would look at and say, no, I'm, I'm never going to do that. Right. So, so in this case, I had to take powder, like this product was made in powder form in China, uh, to actually ship it to Australia. They turned it into bricks and packed it according to DOT specifications, and then they shipped it to the United States. So, so I solved that problem, right? And the, the buyer was a, a public company. They were uh, basically a miner, right? An, a, a gold miner. And uh, uh, they issued me a letter of credit. And again, I, I didn't have a finance department or whatever. So I figured out if I open an account in the same bank that they already bank with, then I can do a back-to-back letter of credit and then just issue the, the letter of credit to my seller without the buyer knowing who's the seller. So, I, so one by one, I solved all the problems and without ever traveling outside of New York, I did all of that with a fax machine and a phone. And my biggest problem was that I didn't have enough money to pay the phone bill because you're making these, this is back when calling Australia or China Calling International was crazy expensive. Yeah, $2 a minute, $3 a minute. So I knew my deadline was not when the people will sign the agreement. My deadline was, can I get the deal done before they're going to disconnect my phone lines? Yeah. (laughs) Because I didn't have enough money to go and meet these people. The only money I had was barely to pay my rent. And I got credit. AT&T gave me long distance on credit because I had 30 days after the month, end of the month, to pay the bill. So that I had 60 days to close the deal. And I did manage to close it in like 45 days. Wow. I'm still, I mean, I'm sure we could spend a whole podcast just on that one deal, but I just don't understand how you even get like, how do you find the sodium cyanide in China? I presume you don't speak Chinese either. And again, there was no internet. That was easy. I went to the library on 42nd street and I asked them for a directory, a chemical directory. And I sent the fax to every manufacturer of sodium cyanide in the world back then. I sent them all a fax saying I'm from Target Trading. It was a Luxembourg company. I didn't because if it looked very, very old, the logo looked like it was 200 <laughs> years old. And I, I want to buy your sodium cyanide. And I would sleep, and every few minutes there would be a fax spitting out telling me we're sold out. Because it was a global shortage. Right, 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 right. So my my entire night was watching all of these faxes coming in from Asia. And from Europe telling me... Saying no, 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 right. Exactly, how they got nothing. And then one Chinese company said, oh, we're just about to launch our new plant. It's going to go online in, in the next month or so. How much do you need? And I was like, I'll take it all. You know? Oh, my gosh. Well, I did that because the worst case scenario was that I'm going to have to run to the airport with my return ticket and just fly back. That was the downside, right? Yeah. And then when... People come looking for target trading, they'll just find a fax machine in a mattress. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, because I think this history is important insofar as it kind of will take us back to why you ended up doing Celsius, which is a bit from what I've read outside of like the normal kind of areas where you ended up doing a lot of your other startups. So could you talk about a few of those other startups, especially like, I think you had two or three unicorns. No, you're right. But they all do have a common denominator. So like, if you look at voice over IP, for example, right, which is uh, really taking the power from the phone companies and giving it to all of us. Skype. Well, this is 10 years before Skype, right? Skype was 2004. I'm talking about 1994. So I built the first gateway, VoIP gateway. 1994. Mm-hmm. And my customer, my customer was actually AT&T. So I was 
Mm. I was in the right place at the right time. AT&T had a problem. The Department of Commerce had a problem. We were, we, the United States, were paying billions of dollars in settlements to British Telecom, Deutsche Telekom, and so on. And they got tired of this imbalance in payments. And they said, okay, how do we get around the bilateral agreements? And they went to Bell Labs and they went to Bellcor and they went to all these famous companies and none of them could figure it out. And I said, I know how to do it. And after they were desperate enough, they said, fine, okay, what can you do? And I remember it like today, I, I, <laughs> I only had four employees in the company and I, I, I knew they're not going to be impressed with four employees. So I ordered a stretch limo and I asked every one of my employees to bring one friend with them to work. And we filled up the limo and we took it down to, uh, what's the place in New Jersey? Gosh, I forgot now. Anyway, I'll remember in a minute. It, it's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's a headquarters for AT&T, right? Uh, they're no longer yeah. there, but uh, it used to be the headquarters for AT&T. And we walked in and uh, I said to him, look, I, I'm going to do a demo. I need an outside line. And they started yeah. walking around and uh, looking for code to dial out. And I said, oh, you don't have a code? I can get around it. And they're like, this is AT&T. You cannot get around our system. I'm like, let yeah. me show you. And I dialed a bunch of sequence codes and I got around and got an outside line and called who I need to call. And I did the demo, the voice over IP demo, which used the TCP IP network. And they were very impressed because no one has ever mm. managed to make an outside call in AT&T without a code. And here was right. a guy who figured out how they're like, if he can get around the AT&T PBX, he can definitely yeah. get around the bilateral system. So, so we actually installed uh, the first gateway in Japan and then Korea and then in Hong Kong. And I put one also in, uh, in Sydney and so on. And it was front page in the New York Times. I remember like today, uh, I think it was January, February of uh, 1996. AT&T disrupts uh, bilateral agreements by launching voice services in Japan. So just so people understand, what were these bilateral agreements back in the day? So basically, you have an undersea cable. Half of the cable is owned by AT&T. Half of the cable is owned, let's say, by British Telecom. And all the calls go between those two parties, meaning... Uh, and then every month, they would count how many calls did you have, how many calls did I have, and then net it off. And because it was so much cheaper to call from the United States, because the U.S. had in competition, everybody would just call. If I was in the U.K., I would call you in the U.S. and say, hi, call me back. And you would just call me back. Yeah, yeah. Almost everywhere in every country in the world, there were three times as many calls from the U.S. compared to from the other countries. So the U.S. Right, always, right, always right. had to pay out. And the settlements were $2 a minute. It wasn't cheap settlements. It was like, Oof, so, right. so we, the United States, had an outflow Back then, billions of dollars was a lot of money. Now it's nothing, you know, but, yeah, yeah. but um, <laughs> so they wanted a solution to eliminate this bleeding of, of billions of dollars out of treasury, right? Of, of an imbalance in payments. And voice of IP, back then, that was not the winning uh, uh, protocol. All the phone companies were going after ATM, were going after Frame Relay, we're going after all these other technologies. No one thought that the internet or TCP IP is going to become the dominant protocol. So I was, I wrote a patent about it in 1990, October 1994. I built the gateways and tested the system in 95 and we deployed it in 96. So you just tinkered with this till you figured it out basically? Yes. 
Right. <laughs> I have I have about 50 patents to prove that. So, you know, they don't right. just give you a patent uh, just because you no. you have you're a fast talker. <laughs> so that company Arbinet uh, raised about 350 million when public. It was the best IPO of 2004 and mm. uh, Google went public that year. So we did better than Google. And then what happened to Arbinet? So then the people with uh, white hair or no hair decided that I was a one-hit wonder and they needed to replace me with adult people with a lot of experience. Adult supervision, as they say. Yes. Well, adult supervision is fine when you bring other people to supervise you. But when they replace you and they have no fresh ideas, you know, you can't, uh, you know, like the company was already 10 years old and usually you need a new product every five years. So... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they had nothing, they had no innovation. And by uh, basically 2011, uh, the company didn't have much business and it got sold, merged with another public company. And I mean, again, uh, investors still made, uh, whatever, 50 or 100 times their money. But the point is, is that we could have been one of the leading companies. Like if you look at Twilio, if you look at uh, any company that yeah, deal yeah. with, Arbonet was that 10 years before, like I filed patents on virtual machines. I filed patents on uh, Netflix mm. on how do you basically deliver stream video. Streaming, right. All these things. So we had patents on uh, ad exchanges. How do you create uh, marketplaces, not just for voice of IP, but also for advertising, for media, for all this other stuff, which is what Google and everybody, Facebook is using today. So when did you get forced out? What year was that? Yeah, so I, I was CEO for uh, six years from 95 to 2001. Then I was on the board uh, for several years. And, uh, you know, this is really where, you know, I was hoping that just like uh, Steve Jobs, they're going to uh, let me sit on the sidelines for 13 years. Bring you back in, see the error of their ways and be like, yeah. Exactly. But they decided that uh, I had too many ideas, you know, so... Mm. So instead, I built three unicorns outside of Arbonet instead of inside of Arbonet, you know. So what were those other companies? So obviously, I also have failures. I actually have all my big failures listed on my website as well. So if you if you want to, some people love talking about the failures too. But uh, I love talking about failures. I feel like they're oftentimes much more instructive. Right. So after leaving uh, Arbonet, the next big thing I tried to build was Uber before Uber. It wasn't called Uber. It was called limo res and then we renamed it to ground link but basically it was the first uh, app in the beginning it was on on the blackberry then it was on the iphone and and on android so the first app you could actually order cars on demand was not uber people just don't know it right we were we were in uh, at least 500 cities when uber was just in san francisco oh wow but we didn't have we we, we didn't raise I, I was sitting with bill Gurley from uh benchmark yeah. benchmark two or three days before he closed the deal with uh travis kalanick and i know bill i know oh, really? yes i know bill for i don't know 15 years 20 years yeah and i was like bill i don't understand i already created several unicorns yeah you're about to give money to a guy who failed 10 times in a row never made a dime for any of his investors yeah. Instead of me, and it was like, well, they are pure play. You are not a pure play. You're in New York. They're right here in the valley, and that's it. You know that was. Uh, and then they raised sixteen billion dollars, subsidizing prices. Right? They never made money. Yes. 
Uh, so it's a great business model. Still, it, still haven't made money. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great, my, my business was growing 30% year over year and it was profitable. And that was not good. Too slow. Too, too slow. slow. And uh, I couldn't absorb a few hundred million dollars or billions of dollars. So, so anyway, so sometimes my, my point is that, that we tried, our slogan was happy drivers equals happy customers. And Uber, yeah. Uber did the opposite. Uber said uh, subsidizing rides for yuppies equals less pay to drivers. That was their formula. <laughs> and they won. So good. They did. Good not always wins, right? You have to really work hard. So that was one of my failures, right? After that, yeah. I, I decided that I want to put wireless in the New York subways. New York is the largest subway, uh, underground subway system in the world. And it's the yeah. last city in the world that did not have wireless, did not have uh, 4G or Wi-Fi in the subways. I mean, it's just crazy, right? That's crazy. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. I live in yeah. the city. I was like, I, this is impossible. I went to talk to the MTA and they kept telling me how it's not safe. I'm like, what's not safe is that 7 million people that use the subway every day get stuck because you have some emergency and they can't call anybody. Yeah, yeah. That's what's not safe, you know? Yeah. So I fought with them for a while. And then what's mo- amazingly, I, this was the second time I won against the phone company. So it was me, my little company, Transit Wireless, against four carriers who got together, colluded together to form a company to win this bid. AT&T, Verizon, right. T-Mobile, and Sprint all got together, created a company, and they, they were sure that if they go to the MTA and bid against uh, me, that the MTA, no matter yeah. what my bid was, the MTA would give it to them because they were the phone companies. Yeah, yeah. So I remember it like today, I'm sitting in the living room watching TV and my wife picks up the paper, the New York Times and drops it on my lap. And she says, I don't know if you're the dumbest guy in the world or the smartest guy in the world, but you should read this. <laughs> and the title said, the title was, the MTA awards uh, uh, its uh, contract for uh, underground wireless services to Transit Wireless, who agreed to pay $47 million for the service. I, we, we had to pay to install the system yeah. and spend another yeah. $300 million. But what's funny was that the next sentence said, the carriers who got together bid $1 each, meaning they bid $4. So I bid $47 million and they bidled $4. And my wife looked at me and she said, you know, do you think you overbid for this thing? What was your answer? I said, I don't know. This is going to be either one of the, my best projects or it's going to go on that list of my one of my biggest failures. Yeah. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. But this was another situation. It's like going to the gym. They really don't want you in the gym. They just want you to pay the membership. Totally. So the same thing with the phone companies. They don't want you. When you're in the subway, you're not using the airwaves. You're paying them the monthly fee, but you're not occupying. Mm. You're not congesting. Yeah the New York City airwaves, right? So they love that. And here I come, this annoying guy who already ruined their long distance business and gave everybody VoIP for free. And I forced them to operate the same service underground and have 7 million people while they're an hour a day commuting 
basically have signal as well, right? That cost hundreds of millions of dollars. So, so they wanted to kill this project. They didn't really want to install it. They just wanted to win it and then make 20 years go by and give a hundred reasons why it wouldn't happen. Yeah. So the, the MTA was smart enough to realize that giving it to the carrier is not going to work. It's not going to be a good idea. They awarded it to us. We launched the service in 2011. And today, all 300 underground stations provide free service. The beauty here is free. Mm. The Wi-Fi is free. The 5G, the 4G is free. And we got the carriers to pay for it. I mean, how many times have you heard? First, we stole VoIP from them. We gave it to 5 billion people on the planet. And the second time, we got the carriers to pay for your Wi-Fi. Why are they paying for it? Because uh, it's their signal, it's their infrastructure, yeah. and basically they had to pay to provide the service. They, the infrastructure costs money. They had to pay I see. transit wireless because what happened, we were lucky. Look, we were very lucky. In uh, basically 2007, when we launched the first six stations around 14th Street, AT&T had horrible service. Remember, they launched the iPhone and there was just no service. Yeah. And they were dying to show people that at least there is one place where they can give people five bars. So they basically broke that monopoly. The four carriers who would not talk to us, they detached themselves from those carriers and signed the first agreement for the first uh, few stations. And they went advertising all over the city how only with AT&T and with an iPhone you can get five bars. But it was only in six underground stations. Right, 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 right. And, right. and then it became a competitive situation, right? Then the other carriers, Verizon being the last one, they could not be in the subways. Right. So we were lucky the, otherwise I would have built it and they would not have come. So we would have right. spent $300 million waiting for them to basically drive us out of business. Right. Does transit wireless still around or did you sell that or what? Yeah, no, it's, I just got a check from them, another dividend check. So, Oh, great. Again, it's doing good first fighting, building it and then doing well. Uh, when now again, 7 million people use it every day. So what gets you to crypto? So first, I wanted to do fintech for a while. I dabbled in different things. 2004, I worked on transferring money using email. And I, I didn't solve the double spend problem like Satoshi did. So it didn't work. You know, sending somebody $20 and still having it in your inbox yeah. doesn't work too well. So, <laughs> so we, had, we had schemes on how to solve it, but they were not uh, bulletproof like Satoshi did, right? I mean, that... Even I, I mean, when I read uh, Satoshi's white paper, I did not, I completely underestimated hmm. the fact that he solved the double spend problem, right? And I worked on it. So it should have been obvious to me, but it is such an inefficient system. I'm all about efficiency, right? I'm all about yeah. faster, cheaper, better. And here comes something that is the slowest database in the world and the most expensive database. Bitcoin. Yes. The slowest database in the world, slowest ledger in the world and the most expensive one, right? So both things that are very hard for my brain to process, right? So hmm. so several years go by, uh, Mount Gox takes place and Bitcoin keeps walking, right? I was like, how is this possible? It should have been dead 10 times over. 90% of the trading volume disappears overnight. It should have killed Bitcoin five times over and it still keeps walking. And, and Mount Gox was, was that, that was 2014. 14. 2014, right? Yeah, I think it was January or February of 2014, yeah. Right. And that was like, as you say, if you just refresh people's memory, what exactly that was, because I feel like that was like the moment where people are like, ah, see, told you. Exactly. This is 
not going to work. Exactly. So back in the day, uh, there was only really one exchange, Mt. Gox, that handled all the volume. If you wanted to buy or sell Bitcoin, uh, they were it, right? 90% of the global volume. And they had a hack and they basically, a lot of the Bitcoins got stolen and they had to shut down the exchange. And they were shut down since 2014. And only recently there was actual distribution of the recovered Bitcoins to the coin. So the good news is that anyone who hodled from 2014 is doing great. You know, it's almost like oh, I know. it was a, a blessing in disguise because chances are you would have sold it 10 times since 2014. But here you were forced totally. to hodl. So when Mongox collapsed and the volume dropped by 90% and the price of Bitcoin dropped to, I think, something like $60 or $50. I don't remember the exact price, but it was at a thousand and it went down like crazy, right? It was just catastrophic event. People kept buying Bitcoin. People kept uh, hodling Bitcoin. So that forced me to rethink all of my assumptions. It wasn't an easy process. Mm. I was like, normally I'm very quick with tech. You know, I get it very quickly. Yeah. And here is like, okay, what am I missing? How do, how do you rewire your own neurons to fire differently when you talk about ledgers and when you talk about, and, and that's why for a lot of people on Wall Street, it's very, very hard to understand crypto because it's the opposite of everything they know. And somehow it works. Uh, so I started uh, dabbling in cryptocurrencies. And what I decided to do is focus on the next killer app, the next use case. Okay. I don't believe that Bitcoin is a form of payment. I just think it's a phenomenal store of value. It will never be a form of payment. And it's very simple why. If you listen to Elon Musk and you bought a car from him a year ago, you hate your Tesla because it cost you half a million dollars. <laughs> you know, you gave Elon your Bitcoin and he gave you a car that is depreciating in value every day. Nobody wants to be that guy who spent, he used 10,000 Bitcoin to buy two pizzas back in 2011 or whatever. Exactly. So, but every time you do a transaction, you're doing a, a version of that. It might not be as extreme. So it cannot be a form of payment. So not yet. Okay. When, when the price stabilizes and the entire world is using it, great. Maybe we can then talk about it. Right now, it's just a phenomenal store of value, the best ever created. So I said, okay, what's next? Well, and this is again, 2015, 2016. So I was like, okay, yields are crashing all over the world. What Japan is doing is going to come to Europe, is going to come to the United States. Yields are going to be zero or negative. If we can create yield on the blockchain, if we can give people yield they cannot earn anywhere else, all the money in the world is going to move from TradFi into what I call CFI or centralized finance, which is better than DeFi. We can talk about why it's better than DeFi. Yes. I've never heard CFI. Yeah, that's the, <laughs> that's the pure version. It's like, do you want the pure vodka or do you want just the vodka that everybody drinks? You know? Always pure. Yeah. So... Yeah. I think in the beginning, I can tell you, people told me, Alex, maybe you had a few successes in the telecom world or in internet infrastructure, and you tried to dabble in cars and you didn't succeed, but this is maybe a bridge too far for you. Maybe, maybe you should retire, you know, like just, just count, so go rest on your laurels. What are you talking about? You cannot pay yield on Bitcoin. No one has ever done that, right? So it was very hard. I pitched at least 200 VCs. 200. 200. Tim Draper and all the famous people in Silicon Valley, they all looked at Celsius and all said, it's not possible. It's never going to work. No one is going to give you their Bitcoin. 
Well, that's really interesting. So you pitched all these people and, you know... After I had two unicorns. Well, this is what, exactly what I was going to say. You you've, you have a track record, which is the thing that so many people kind of look to when they're deciding whether they're going to back somebody. And so you have these two successes and they're still saying no. And these are 100x each. Not It's not just a little success. Each one of them yeah, yeah. is 100x return on, on investment, right? So it is not... Uh, an easy concept, right? Because again, if, if the entire world is going to zero rates, how are you going to pay eight, nine, 10%? It makes no mm. sense that a bank can pay you 0.1% and you somehow can pay a hundred times more, not a hundred percent more, a hundred times more. hundred times. Yeah. So, so it looked like a Ponzi scheme. It looked like, okay, this guy is a little off his rocker. You know, he forgot his memory pills and he's just, talking shit, you know? <laughs> but the beauty here is we went to the community. We did an ICO. We we went to the community, crypto community. Did you do an ICO when ICOs were yes. a thing? Yes, we did. In 2017, right. we went to the community, we wrote a white paper and we said, look, we can deliver yield on the blockchain. We want you guys to be the first customers. Give us some Ethereum and Bitcoin so we can build it for you. Here is the full spec. Right, you can read our white paper. Everything it says, we're still doing. We haven't changed our plan by one inch. You know how companies pivot ten times. Yeah, 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 yeah. We have not pivoted. Okay, and they gave us fifty million dollars. The community gave us fifty million dollars. Fifty million dollars worth of Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and whatever yes, else. Yes. Right. The most important thing was not even the fifty million. The most important thing is that several thousand crypto holders decided to back this project and when we launched yeah. the service three months later in march of uh so we finished ico march 18 2018 and then we launched the service in july of 2018. we actually started paying every week paying interest and every week money would just show up new bitcoin new ethereum would just show up without any advertising right. without any campaigns without anything right and we've gone from zero to $30 billion. Our peak was $30 billion. Now Bitcoin crashed, so we had $24 billion. 24, like uh, assets under management, yes. so to speak. Yes. Right. Without basically placing any ads or doing any kind of marketing. Because we paid 100 times more than the banks, right? And banks are not your friends. People know that, you know? And people, we just paid every week. We just paid yield. Right, you gave us Ethereum, we paid on Ethereum. You gave us Litecoin, we paid on Litecoin. And now we have a hundred competitors who copy everything we're doing. <laughs> What's the catch? Is it like so? If I, you know, say go back to the example at the beginning, it's my five thousand Bitcoin. I give it to you. Is it like I don't have access to it, or if I want to get it out, there's a fee, or maybe I can't get it? Like, what is the risk here? All the things you talked about are things that other people have. So uh, they all lock you up for 90 days or they have a withdrawal fee or they, Celsius doesn't have any of those things. We pay your withdrawal fees. We paid $18 million worth of withdrawal fees to our community. We don't have any lockup. You can deposit in the morning, change your mind, and an hour later withdraw everything without any fees, without any penalties or anything like that. So I know it's very hard for people to understand this, but the catch is that banks are abusing our relationship with them. And they've been doing it for so long. Every year, they would steal more from us to give to their shareholders that it got to the point where it's egregious. They charge you for everything. 
right? So yeah. banks still make, banks brag like just a few days ago, like actually this morning, several banks announced their earnings, all-time record profits, all-time record profits for all the banks. So how can you make all-time record profits, right? Tens of billions of dollars in profit. When you're paying out 0% Exactly, and pay 0.1%. So JP Morgan could be still a profitable bank if they paid 1% to their customers, even if they paid 2% to their customers. Yeah. So the blame is with us, the consumers, for accepting the fact that they charge us inactivity fee and checking fee and overdraft fee and ATM fee and a deposit fee and a withdrawal fee. I mean, you name it, right? Right? It's, it's just crazy. So what if we created a system that is actually acting in our best interest? We pulled our capital together. We lent it. We did the same activities that the banks do, mm. but we didn't do it as a bank. We did it as a pool. And we gave most of the revenues back to the community instead of the shareholders. That's all we did. Well, what's, re what's really interesting is because I've been reading and writing a lot about Web3, crypto, all of this kind of, it's really having a moment, especially out here in Silicon Valley. You have a lot of people kind of leaving the big tech companies and going to crypto startups, Web3 startups. This is, you know, the dawn of a new era, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We, we announced today, by the way, we announced two very high level executives who left a very senior bank, a Citibank and an ing bank who came to celsius one is mm. a, our chief investment officer and one is our chief operating officer so we couldn't be a better example <laughs> so what i was going to say is though but it sounds like and correct me if i'm wrong that the way that celsius is set up you know because the whole point of crypto in a way is that you don't have to trust anyone that the code is the intermediary. There isn't a person yes. you have to trust on the other side of, an, of a transaction. But here it feels like you do have to trust Celsius to actually do well with your money. In other words, you're kind of like a fund, a crypto fund manager that if you screw up. You're totally right. So we're using voice of IP right now. Do you know how voice of IP works? No. Exactly. No one who uses voice of IP knows how it works, but it works. Right. So yeah, we used yeah. to we used to have an intermediary. We used to have to use AT&T for me to talk to you. And that's why they charge three dollars a minute. So why did voice of IP become possible? Because a new network, a new infrastructure that had nothing to do with the traditional network. Right. Was created the, the Internet, which uses a different protocol that had nothing to do with the traditional carriers. And we could take the same transaction that used to go through that intermediary and transact between us. Now, when you talk to people on the internet, do you use intermediaries or do you do do you actually go and put their TCP IP address? Oh, I always put in their TCP IP address. And do you do you ask them what <laughs> protocol they use and you do a handshake? No, no, no. no. no so you no. use an intermediaries, but you get it for free. Yeah. So the same thing on the blockchain. Anyone who thinks that, and again, I've seen this movie. The reason all this stuff is easy for me, right, is because I already seen the movie. I know where we're going. I'm just going straight to the last, you know, where it says F-I-N at the end. You know, that's it. <laughs> Fien. Um, well, so that's what's really interesting. So I'd love to get your take on this because, you know, there's a lot of debate right now about what Web3 is. Exactly. And that's a debate between CFI and DeFi. The debate says... Do we need to be fully decentralized, decentralized finance, DeFi? Yeah. Or is centralized finance only centralized finance that acts in your best interest? Meaning 
Celsius is fully transparent. We are more transparent than any DeFi project. Why? We provide you tools that prove to you that we are doing what we promised to do. Go try to figure out a DeFi protocol. Go dig into the code and figure out if, if they're cheating you or if they're doing a rug pull or if, did they pay you what you were supposed to, right? So, so the issue is not, are we using TCP IP or should we use some kind of like more intelligent layer like uh, a Zencaster to communicate with each other? The issue is, is the platform, the Zencaster platform in this case, which we're talking on, uh, using a uh, trusted uh, uh, VoIP protocol and is the quality going to be good and can you rely on it and, and so on, so on. So, so the utility that you're looking at as an output in VoIP is very simple. The utility you're looking as output in money is not that simple because if Zencaster doesn't work, you switch to Skype or something else, nothing happens. If CFI doesn't work, you lose all your money. For sure. Right? So we want to migrate billions of people from traditional finance, leave the old network behind, create a new set of rails that is running on this open ledger, uh, new protocols, right? Decentralized finance. But we want to do it in a way that acts in our best interest, just like VoIP acts in our best interest. And that's what most people miss because they come here for the riches. They go from basically fiat land to crypto land, right? They take a plane. They think, oh, I'm just yeah. going to land. I'm going to make a lot of money. And, yeah. and they lose all their money. And then they take a plane back, you know, on that return ticket to, uh, you know, two days later, back to fiat land, right? Empty handed. <laughs> yeah. This year, 2021, right? Last year, $22 billion were lost by hacks and scams on DeFi. $22 billion. $22 billion. Yes, look it up. It's uh, I think Coindesk did an article about a report that was published, right? So if you thought you knew what you were doing and you just went in, it's like the Wild West, right? You went into yes. and you thought that uh, you were getting paid 20%. You woke up the next morning and all your money was gone. So you need a shepherd. You need someone that you trust who can navigate these rough waters for you and help you get to safety, meaning safety means financial freedom in our world, right? We want to navigate for 30 years with you, hand in hand. I have my $300 million in Celsius. Do you want to put your money next to mine? I'm a captain. I've been through this many times. I know exactly how to get there. Do you want to do it by yourself? You personally have $300 million. I personally have three hundred over $300 million on the Celsius platform. Right. So that is the challenge. The challenge is who is your captain? Do you trust them? Mm. Do you go to sleep in the cabin trusting that the captain is not going to hit an iceberg or navigate you to the pirates or or whatever and going to reach the destination where you can live? What, what does everybody want? Everybody wants to get to the point where they can live off their income, right? You want to work? Great. Go volunteer. Go get the job you really love, right? So we're not trying to give you yield. We're trying to give you a destination that you can't get with any bank or any financial company. All right. The, if, you are an, if you have a middle uh, level job in the United States, if you are uh, low income or you're uh, mid-management or whatever, you have zero chance for retirement. Zero chance with inflation and everything else that's going on. Yeah. So Celsius is introducing, and you can talk to our community, just go on our Twitter channel or YouTube or whatever, talk to those people and see what they tell you. Right. I mean, what we're giving them is hope that they've, they've lost that hope. And how many billionaires 
call on you and say, hey, I'm here to help you. I'm, I'm going to share with you all the secrets that I know from Wall Street. And I'm going to let you participate side by side with me on extracting billions of dollars out of these institutions. How many times does institutions pay billions of dollars to retail guys? How many times did that happen in history? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what we're here for. So I guess my question is then, what does the success here depend on? Does it depend on Bitcoin going to, you know, 100,000, a million, choose your crazy number, or Ethereum becoming, you know, the architecture for a whole new layer of services like, you know, because there's however many thousands of cryptocurrencies, most of them are garbage. 16,000. Yeah. Yeah. 16,000, right. So it seems like what you have created here is effectively a, a, a crypto fund manager that's just a better deal for people. But presumably that means crypto becoming, of just taking off or kind of transforming kind of industries, finance, everything and becoming the thing. Is that right? Well, so there are several scenarios here, right? And, and you're 100% right that this doesn't work in all of them, right? So obviously, if yeah. Bitcoin is hacked tomorrow, somebody manages to break the blockchain, poof, everybody loses everything, right? So the, it's not, there are risks involved, but there are risks also involved in just holding your dollars and hoping for the best. <laughs> yeah. You know, so there's definitely several scenarios. And we, we tell everybody, look, I say that to people, on every one of my shows. If you're not sleeping well at night, that means you have too much Bitcoin. If you're sleeping like a baby, that means you don't have enough Bitcoin. You need to be right in that zone <laughs> where, where you're a little bit uncomfortable. Like six and a half hours, I'm a little bit groggy in the morning. <laughs> you wake up and you want to check the price. That means you're just in the right yeah. zone. But you you woke up, you, you slept the whole night, you're in good shape. Yeah, so, yeah. And you should not put all your eggs in one basket, right? You should have multiple different assets that represent different utilities, right? Again, Bitcoin and Ethereum have non-correlated utilities. It's beautiful, right? They, each one of them does something very, very different. And you need to say, okay, my entire basket, let's say, is whatever. But their prices go up and down in tandem, which is weird. Yes, they're correlated, but their utility is not correlated. Right. But most people don't understand that, okay, your home, your savings, your income, your future income is all denominated in dollars. So you're already taking a huge risk on dollars. Now, so the question is just, should I put 5%, 10%, 20% of my asset into this non-correlated basket? That is really the main decision, right? And then who do I entrust with that basket? Who's going to watch it over for me? And is that enough? Is that basket enough to get me to financial freedom? Mm. Because if I only have $200 and I put... 25% of that for savings, that's not going to be enough, right? So what we're trying to do is help everybody, not just the rich, also the middle class, the poor, navigate through this path together and make it to the finish line. Because for each person, they have different goals. For one person, it's like, I just want to help my parents. For another person, I want to retire in Costa Rica. I just need $1,000 a month or whatever. And so on, so on. So you you can achieve your goals if you understand what the numbers look like, what yield, what compounding interest does. You diversify and so on. So again, we're not financial advisors. We don't sit there like Fidelity and help you create a basket of 15 ETFs and, and promise you that everything is going to be wonderful, right? 
So what, what you make the choices, our job is to extract as much as possible on these assets from the other side. So back to the scenarios. We talked about the bad scenarios. Bitcoin fails, Ethereum does not become the dominant network, right? They go sideways or they go down. If you didn't diversify, yeah, you're going to have losses, but it's not catastrophic. You still have your nest egg of the dollars of most of the assets you have, nothing happened. But if Bitcoin continues the way it is, on average, it does two to 300% a year on average, right? That 10 or 20% is going to become the majority of your basket. And then you need to do a rebalancing. We don't just say hodl. We say hodl and rebalance, right? Yeah. And when you rebalance, you basically bring back the ratio that you wanted. For example, 25%. So you should take, you should sell some of your Bitcoin, put it into stocks or put it into real estate or whatever else, right? Or you can change the ratio. You can say, you know what? I'm changing my ratio to 30% or 40% or whatever, right? So Bitcoin doesn't, or Ethereum do not need to go to a million for this plan to work. What you need is just enough of your portfolio to be allocated for the returns to be substantial that they can basically change your lifestyle, right? That is what we're preaching and that's what we are trying to get people to do. Right. And again, but this, the whole kind of premise is basically these cryptos becoming something that they are not today. In other words dramatically increasing in value and becoming these, you know, fundaments of modern life in some way. I, I think our traditional financial system is bankrupt. Okay. No economist can show me or you a way where the United States, which is the largest debtor in history, can repay its debts. There's no mathematical scenario in which we somehow either increase GDP or we find a pot of gold or we start making things and everybody in the world buys them from us and we somehow have enough tax revenues or enough value created where we can take $120 trillion worth of unfunded liability that includes about $30 trillion of national debt, right? Yeah. And, and somehow get rid of it. So we know we're going to have to debase the currency. How do we know that? It already happened a dozen times in history. Look at any empires, the British Empire, the Dutch Empire, the Roman Empire, they all debased their currencies, right? So unfortunately, anyone who looks in the back mirror and says, look, the road doesn't have any hazards on it, that doesn't mean anything because you're about to hit a tree yeah. or, you're, or you're about to fall off a cliff. <laughs> so all the people I talk to all tell me how beautiful the road looks in the back mirror. And they completely ignore the fact that for the last 20 or 30 years, all Americans lived beyond their means. And our market, I came to this country looking at the United States as a shiny house at the top of the hill. Yeah. And we were the example of capitalism. Today, the Fed runs the economy even in a more concentrated way than China or Russia or anybody else. If you talk about centralized economic activity, the Fed runs the U.S. economy. They decide which company lives or dies because they decide if they bother debt or not. They decide how much stimulus to put in. They decide everything. And if you have access to that capital, it doesn't matter if you are a, a cruise ship a company that should be out of business 10 times over, you still survive. Right. Even though you have no customers, you can keep existing forever. So the challenge is really that the yield in in crypto, the eight and a half percent is real. And the yield in our financial markets, as crazy as it sounds, is all fake. 
Right. So I just want to get your take on this kind of Web3 and this kind of messianic tribal belief that we're about to remake everything, remake the internet, remake finance, remake art, music, everything using blockchain. Because it feels like there's this idea is attracting a lot of people, a lot of money, but kind of to the point what you're doing, it's like, there's a reason for centralization. There's a reason that, you know, an iPhone has apps and it has, you know, a few places you can go that are people that make it easy to do whatever it is you want to do. That's what centralization does. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And then the other question is, what are you going to use the 750 million you just raised? What are you going to use that for? So I, I published uh, uh, Open Ed, a piece 2017. I think it's called the Cambrian Explosion uh, of Innovation. It was talking about crypto innovation and so on. And I said that crypto is bigger than the internet. And I lived through the internet boom. It's not like uh, I'm talking about something I read in a book, right? The internet solved uh, how do we communicate, where information is stored, uh, how do we distribute stuff. This is a fight over all the money in the world. Hmm all the money in the world. And the other fight we have to do is over verification. Is anything you read on the internet, can you believe it, right? So today we have no way of knowing if anything is real or not real. So we need to redo the infrastructure. We cannot just fix it by policing it like China does, right? We have to create new infrastructure in which if you tell me that you send me a message, I know it's authentic and I know that you're really the author and I can trust you. And if our president sends a message, we know that it's authentic and it was sent and so on. So to eliminate all that manipulation of information and make money sound, because it's not sound anymore, we need a new set of rails. We need a completely new infrastructure. And you're seeing, again, some of the smartest people in the world, Jack Dorsey, other people leaving huge jobs, right, to come and build this future, right? So the opportunity is definitely there. Now, some people call it the metaverse, because they named their company Meta. Some people call it Web3 because they don't want centralized authorities to continue centralizing this new infrastructure. But that's not what what this is about. It's about retaining trust with 8 billion people. The fight is really over trust. Everything else comes after. You use my wallet because you trust me, not because I have the best wallet or I have the best yield or anything like that. So Web3 is about trust for me, right? It's all about who's going to win the trust with 8 billion people. Now, China took 1.4 billion out of that eight and said, we're not going to let Bitcoin or any one of you guys come in here. We have our own version called Digital Yuan, and we're going to run everything in a centralized way. It's still a digital currency, but it's not decentralized. So you have a pendulum that is swinging from max centralization towards decentralization, but there's going to be many nations who are going to freeze it there in in the centralized version and say, nope, we're just going to do it our way. So, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, but I know that we, the people, can vote with our pockets, vote with our actions to either let the decentralized version win or let centralized actors like Facebook take it over. Facebook is already half of the internet, right? If they win this, and that's why they had such big pushback when they were trying to get into the space, right? Every co- government, yeah, yeah, everybody yeah. said, no, we're not letting you control this also. Because the only thing they don't have is your financial data. Everything else, right? They know everything else from your WhatsApp, from Insta, from 
from your Facebook and so on. So the opportunity and the challenge for, for humanity is again, are we building a new better system that is for the people? Or are we gonna just use this technology to allow the people who centralize the old world to do it even better? even in a more harsh way <laughs> yeah, yeah, in exactly. the new in infrastructure. Because yeah. the blockchain works both ways. The blockchain is like a hammer. You can build a house or you can break all the windows. It doesn't care. The hammer doesn't talk and say, oh, I'm objecting to breaking windows. Yeah. So what are we going to do with 750 million? So we, like I mentioned, we're hiring people that I would never dream uh, that we could hire. So we now at 800 people, we hired 700 people this last year, 2021. Oh, wow. So we went from less than 100 to over 800. And we're trying to hire as many engineers as we can. And I need to use a lot of this money to convince people to trust us, to convince people that everything else other people are doing or trying to do for you in the metaverse or in the crypto world, almost everybody, almost without exception, everybody there is doing it because they want to steal from you. They want to grab your money or your coins in the form of fees, in the form of liquidations, in the form of everything besides helping you get to financial freedom. Yeah. And if I can convince enough people, then we can build this future together. If I cannot convince enough people, then again, enough people are going to get hurt. They're all going to go back on a plane. They're all going to leave crypto land and go back to fiat land and we are not going to have uh, Web3. We're just going to have a continuation of what we already have. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Alex for taking the time to chat. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for coming back week after week to uh, listen to see who I've dug up uh, this week. We've got a bunch of really good stuff coming for you in the coming weeks. So um, please keep your eye on the feed. Subscribe if you haven't already. And that is it for me this week. I'll be writing about, funnily enough, uh, Web3 and the whole crypto kind of world in the Sunday Times this weekend. So you can check that out at thetimes.co.uk. I'm always on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can find me there. You can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it. Have a fabulous week and we'll talk to you next week. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.